Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, business, and recreation. This week, author Joseph Eckhart discusses his book, The King of the Movies, biography of film pioneer Sigmund Lubin. Joseph Eckhart, author of The King of the Movies, who was the king of the movies? Sigmund Lubin was the king of the movies. Film pioneer Sigmund Lubin of Philadelphia. Why'd you write the book about him? Well, I became curious about his career and tried to look him up and didn't find anything anywhere. And looked into it for my curiosity and one thing led to another. Twenty years later, here's the book. How'd you find out about him in the first place? Well, when I first moved to the Philadelphia area from western Pennsylvania, they were tearing down part of the old Bettswood studio. This is in Montgomery County. And my father clipped uh, that article out of the paper and sent it to me at college. And I discovered there had been a movie studio there. And that was specifically what I went to find out about, was why the studio was there and how it operated. Nobody knew. And so that was really what got me started into the research. And what I discovered very quickly was that the studio had been founded by Sigmund Lubin. And that led me off into learning more about his career. Really, uh, it was something I never intended to do. It just sort of happened by itself, uh, by increments. When did he make movies? Well, he started in 1896. His very first film was made in 1896 in his backyard. Uh, he began officially making films as a filmmaker, marketing them in 1897. What was movie making like back then? As primitive as you can imagine. Uh, the, the projector, actually, the projector and the camera both, uh, in his case, had to be handmade. Scramble together pieces and parts of things to, to make these machines and would um, hand crank the film through this in very short lengths, sometimes 20, 30 feet at the very beginning. Um, had to develop it by hand, by trial and error. Nobody knew you know, what, what the settings were. So it was, it was very, very experimental, very primitive, much, much more primitive than people realize. How many seconds is 20 or 30 feet? How much is that in time? Well, it would depend on how fast you, uh, you cranked it. Uh, that would maybe run about a minute, maybe less. So it was hand cranked to film it and then also hand cranked? Yes, hand cranked through back. the camera and then hand cranked through the projector booth. How was it projected? How did you get the light to make the, the image on the wall? Well, in the very beginning, the illumination was entirely um, open flame. They would sometimes use a gas jet. They sometimes used um, a kind of a torch. Um, the electric projectors came much later. How did he get into movie making in the first place? Well, Lubin was looking for something to make money. I mean, he was an optician. Uh, he also opened penny arcades. Uh, he made a type of metal polish. He was always looking for some kind of a scheme to make more money. But he was a very skilled optician, which means he knew how to grind lenses. And he was also blind in one eye, so he had uh, more than a passing interest in optical phenomenon, what you see and how you see it and how the eye works. And he became interested in photography. He added photography to his um, list of enterprises around 1890. And around 
uh, that same time, the idea of moving photographs was very much in the academic world. This was something people were talking about. And there were a lot of experiments. And so he began experimenting. He's already taken still photographs. He's looking for something that can make him more money. Uh, it was really, really just a matter of him pursuing technically something that he thought might make him a great deal of, uh, of money, you know, an extra business added on the side. How much of that was going on in the country at the time? There was quite a bit of experimentation uh, going on, um, on on a number of different levels. Uh, probably most notably, there was Edward Mybridge, the, the British photographer who was trying to make sequential photographs that would you know, replicate the sense of motion. But uh, then in the early 1890s, there were experiments in Edison's laboratories too, uh, on the part of some of uh, Edison's technicians. Uh, you know, Edison more or less told them, invent the movies for me, and then they set to work doing this. And there were experiments in other areas that just didn't work. Um, but only a handful of people with a great deal of technical curiosity. Was it Edison's lab that actually came up with the idea of movies with the sprocket holes? Edison um, supposedly invented the sprocket hole, yes. Uh, it was really one of his technicians, but it was, it was the most efficient way of moving the film through the machine. You know, catching the holes and moving it one step forward. There were other methods, though. There was there was a type of camera that moved the film by rollers, uh, but the sprocket holes turned out to be the most efficient. And since Edison patented the sprocket holes, he was later able to sue people who were using his holes without his permission. How many frames per second at the time? That was entirely uh, dependent upon the cameraman. Uh, they cranked sometimes as low as 14 frames a second. They cranked maybe as high as 18 or more. Lubin, in the very beginning, would tell his cameramen to crank as slowly as possible because they use less film, and that way they use less money. And so he, he would save money. But you can tell when you see some of those films because everything tends to be very jumpy. You have to keep it going at a certain rate to make it look smooth, and there are films that look quite jumpy uh, because they were cranking so slowly. Now, if you went to visit uh, Sigmund Lubin when he was at the peak of his career, when he was the king of the movies, mm -hmm. where would you go? And when would it be? Well, around 1912. You would go to his big studio uh, in Philadelphia, in North Philadelphia by that time, uh, the studio at uh, what they called Lubinville, uh, which was at the corner of 20th and Indiana in Philadelphia. Here's some pictures of it here. And the, um, his office was in that complex. In fact, that, that photograph there was taken from his office window. So you're looking out there across the courtyard at the big glass studio where they made the films. But this would be his viewpoint, looking down from the second floor uh, across the studio grounds. And that's, that's where you'd find him, in his office there. And this next one down here, can we take a look at this picture down below? This is the set. Yes, this is inside of that glass studio. They could film five uh, scenes side by side there, uh, along the length of that floor. Lubin well, claimed they could do 15, but it was only five. What would you have seen if you walked in there? What kind of activity going on? What, what jobs would people be doing? If you had walked into that space at any given time, uh, there would have been substantially larger numbers of people uh, than are shown in this photograph, maybe five times as many people. And there would be absolute chaos. So it was what you would hear would be more impressive than what you would see. The making silent movies was a very noisy business because all of these people were yelling and screaming at the same time. You know, five different directors trying to yell above the sounds of four other uh, directors. And if they were using the lighting equipment, that was powered by a gasoline generator. 
And the noise of that reverberating in that glass-walled space must have been absolutely deafening. Uh, so there'd be things breaking and things being moved and foremen shouting at the workmen because it didn't matter what noise you made. It wasn't being recorded. And so it was really quite a, quite a noisy business. But uh, there, there are reporters who went to the studios in those days who were absolutely amazed by what they saw, what the process was. It was kind of like the process of making a sausage. You, know, you don't want to know necessarily. And the movies um, were quite chaotic in, in the way that they were put together. What kind of movies did he do? Uh, every kind of movie. One of Lubin's marketing ideas was that he would make something for everybody. And somewhere at the height of his career, there was actually uh, an ad that he put in one of the journals that said, we make one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight real films. And then he listed, they were westerns, they were tragedies, they were dramas, they were comedies, they were educational, they were newsreels, and so on, and so on, and so on. He quite literally tried to make uh, something that any theater anywhere would buy. Can you explain the term you just used, one reel, two reel, three reel? How long was a reel? They, by 1909, uh, a standard reel of film was 1,000 feet. And that would last anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes, depending on how fast it was being cranked. Some of the projectionists uh, really considered themselves artists. And so the projectionist, or operator, as they called them in those days, would crank the film slowly and quickly and interpret the film sort of the way an orchestra conductor might interpret a piece of music. And it would never come out quite the same way twice. They, they really thought they were part of the, the performance. And so for a chase, they'd crank it faster to make things move faster. And for something that was sad, they would slow it way down. And you know, the, the, the audience, uh, if they sat through three different projections, might see it three different ways. Where would people go to see these movies? Well, it depends on the time period you're talking about. In, in the very beginning, uh, there weren't any theaters at all. And if you saw movies, you saw them in church basements or you saw them on the side of barns, perhaps. Um, you saw them at traveling fairs. Uh, long before there were any movie houses, there, somebody was marketing special black tents to show films in because they, they were itinerant, typically, uh, the film exhibitors. But around 1902, 1903, 1904, you do uh, start to get some of the first, uh, uh, first real movie houses that are that are permanent. What is this here, the Lubin Cinegraph? This was Cineograph. Lubin's very first uh, movie theater. Now, this was a temporary theater. This was on the grounds of a trade exposition in Philadelphia in 1899. It was on the Midway. And behind that facade, it's really just a big black shack. But the, um, it's significant in that it was his very first movie theater. He claimed it was the first theater ever just designed for showing movies. That isn't quite true, but uh, it certainly is one of the very first uh, theaters designed just to, just to showcase moving pictures. Now, you describe him at one time, I forget what the term is, oh, as the pirate king. What well, do you mean by the pirate king? Well, he stole anything he could get his hands on. Uh, Lubin was absolutely shameless in, in his business practices. Uh, for instance, in the very beginning, one of the problems he ran into immediately was that he could not make films fast enough to meet the demand. Once he sent out his projectors uh, to customers, they demanded films for the projectors faster than he could make the films. And in fact, there was no filmmaker in the United States uh, who could make films fast enough. It just took so long to process them and print them. 
So Lubin uh, came up with the Inspired Solution. He bought one copy of every film made by all manufacturers, and he duplicated them. He made his own copies. He would make a negative and then make uh, as many copies as he wanted. So he was quite literally stealing everybody else's films. And his customers never complained, of course, because they had now access to any film made. They could get it virtually instantly from him and at a bargain price. Uh, the other filmmakers, of course, took a very dim view of this. Were they copyrighted or patented at No. Time? Uh, it was not copyrighted at that time. And, in fact, that was one of the ways he got away with it. There was really no legal recourse. People did sue him. And finally, Edison sued him over this. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court uh, before Lubin lost. Uh, but it went through quite, quite a few uh, legal hoops to get there. Uh, but it wasn't until about 1904 or so that it was finally definitively on record that you could not take somebody else's film, that they had a copyright to it. That didn't stop Lubin, but it stopped a lot of the other ones from, from copying past that point. Lubin's response to that was to go right out and spitefully uh, copy another film of Edison, just more or less come and get me, uh, kind of an attitude. Did he have one movie that was his biggest hit? Uh... That would be hard to say because Lubin made films for such a long time in so many different ways. Um, I, don't, I don't know that you could say that there was any film that was a big hit. Uh, none of his films were especially uh, great in the way that we think today uh, when we use the term great, great films. They were certainly not, not artistic successes. How many movies did he make altogether? Yeah, that's hard to estimate, too. I estimate about between 2,500 and 3,000. Over how many years? This is over a 20-year period of time. What was the period? Between 1897 and, and 1917. Why was he in Philadelphia? Well, his wife wanted to go to Philadelphia. Uh, Lubin, of course, had come from Berlin originally as an immigrant. Uh, he met his wife in New England, and they um, traveled around the country for many years. He was peddling his eyeglasses at uh, county fairs and trade expos and things of that sort. And... When his wife got pregnant while they were on the road, um, she became quite uncomfortable and didn't want to travel anymore. And he said, all right, pick a city. We'll settle wherever you want to settle. She picked Philadelphia. Uh, little did she know how, how fortuitous that would be in some ways. Uh, one of her reasons was she wanted to be close to New York, which is where a lot of her family lived. So when he started making movies, where did he start making them? Literally in his backyard. Which was where? He was at uh, 1608 North 15th Street in, in North Philadelphia. It's uh, very close to where Temple University is today. Anything on that site right now? The house is still there, at least the last time I looked. Uh, I'm almost afraid to look. Uh, anytime I try to save something, somebody tears it down, so I'm, I'm almost reticent to even you know, tell you the address. But the, the house is a hulk. I mean, it has been abandoned for a long period of time. But uh, the last time somebody checked on it for me... Um, a friend of mine lives around the corner there. It, it was still standing. How many of his movies still survive? Well, less than 10% of the, of the number that I estimate he made. It's maybe between two and 300 films that actually survive. Uh, the reason I say you know, between two and 300 is that some of them survive only as fragments. And you wonder sometimes whether you should even count uh, you know, half a minute of film as a surviving film. What was he like to be around? Well, it depended on the phase of the moon or the day of the week or what, uh, you know, what he'd had for lunch. Uh, Lubin was an extraordinarily uh, eccentric and explosive uh, character. 
uh, he could be very, very charming, and he could be absolutely bizarre. Um, and he was famous. I mean, he was literally real world famous for, for his um, eccentric behavior. This is one of the, his, this is one of his official photographs uh, of himself. It's about 50 at the time that that photograph was taken. What was his role at the studio? I mean, would he be on the set if you went to see a movie being made? Lubin um, did appear in his own films. This is in the very early years he did that. He was rumored to be doing it as late as 1912, but I don't see any evidence of him actually doing it any later than about 1908 or so. But in the very beginning, he almost had to appear in films, as did his family members, because there wasn't anybody else. He would round up the neighbors and the kids, and they would make a movie. And uh, he played a lot of a lot of roles. Um, only in the last five years have any of these um, turned up. Now you brought along a couple of films yes. for us to watch. So let's let's take a look. I'll give a little warning into the back room. We'll take a look at one of the early ones in which uh, Sigmund Lubin appears. Okay, I have uh, from 1902 uh, a film called the, the Goose Takes a Trolley Ride. Now, this was actually his remake of, of, of an idea that Edison, uh, the Edison Company, had made. What makes it different and distinctive is, is uh, that, number one, it's more than one shot because you see them get on the trolley, then you see them in the trolley, and later you'll see them get off. Do you know where that scene was, where the trolley was outside? No, I've never figured it out. That's Lubin right there, who just came in and sat down. So he's just a passenger the on, the right. on the trolley. He's on the far right there with the derby, his, his trademark derby. Notice above there, he's giving his friends, the Lit Brothers, uh, oh, free, yeah. free advertisement. They were just down the street from him at that time. The Heinz 57 varieties. And the, and the goose assaults the woman, and the woman assaults the goose's owner. And they show them get off the trolley. And the, the fact that they show them getting on and off with the interior shot in between is, is significant for 192. But that's all there is to the film. That was the whole movie? That's all it took in 192 to keep an audience happy. What would someone have paid to see a movie like that? A nickel. Is that a Nickelodeon? That was the origin? Well, 192 uh, is actually officially even before the Nickelodeons. Lubin himself had permanent theaters by that time. Uh, he's one of the very first to establish permanent theaters, uh, which shows that he had a lot of faith in the industry. He was absolutely sure that this was going to work, this was going to make him rich. And he opened one and then a few months later another uh, theater on the same street. It was in an entertainment district uh, in Philadelphia. There were penny arcades and shooting galleries and uh, tattoo parlors and things like that in the neighborhood, and uh, which gives you an idea of what the reputation of the movies was like, too, at that point. Before you went to a theater, then, what would the experience have been like? You pay your money and you go in and sit down. What did it look like? What did it sound like, smell like? Well, Lubin's theaters tended to be cleaner than others, so you wouldn't get as much of a smell as you would with some of them. The joke in those days, when you pay a nickel, you get a cent back. But Lubin was extremely fastidious, and he would never allow his theaters to be dirty. Uh, but you would certainly uh, smell people and cigar smoke and the sawdust on the floor and... Uh, you know, that was just the facts of life in those days that would have been filled with smoke. Uh, it was lower class people because middle class people wouldn't go into the dark and sit with strangers. Uh, so the, these were institutions that catered to the lower classes, to the street people, to the poor, to the newly arrived immigrants. And uh, there's a big question as to what you would hear uh, because the latest research in early film history suggests that there wasn't any sound. 
We always think stereotypically that there's a tinkling piano, but it's quite likely that uh, the piano player played in between the films while they were changing the reels and not during the film. Or the piano player perhaps uh, only played when the film was over so that some girl could sing and plug the latest hit song. Uh, they're made of sound effects. Many of the films were narrated rather than being accompanied by music. And this, this is an area right now that's kind of in flux. A lot of film historians are scrambling to figure out what really happened in these earliest, uh, earliest theaters. And the problem is there's no way to find out, really. The people who remembered from 19s, who were dead for the most part. And these were such lower-class entertainments that they're not much recorded in, in local newspapers. So you really have to sift through a mountain of stuff to find some little reference that gives you a clue as to what was happening inside the theater. Now, um, you said that, uh, did I read this right, that Sigmund Lubin saw President McKinley shot? Yes, he was apparently there in 1901 when McKinley was shot. He was off at a distance, of course, um, but, but he was there. McKinley was one of his heroes uh, for some reason. Uh, Lubin had really fixated on McKinley, probably voted for him, I guess, and then thought that was his boy. But he, um, he ironically happened to be there when, when McKinley was shot, but not with a camera to record it because Edison had gotten an injunction against him. <laughs> so the only footage of these things uh, from 1901 that survive are Edison's films. But uh, Lubin, of course, then stole those films and marketed them as his own, but he was very disappointed not to have been able to film it himself. Well, can you also tell the story about the, the boxing match that he reenacted between uh, was it Corbett and Fitzsimmons? Lubin uh, reenacted actually uh, as many boxing matches as he thought he could get away with. Um, the, the Corbett and Fitzsimmons is one of the more famous ones. But uh, uh, going back um, as early as 1897, he began to um, market faked films of boxing matches. The first time around, he pretended it was the real thing. Uh, he got so much flack for that that he, uh, from that time on, referred to them as reproductions. And the amazing thing was nobody cared. Rather than wait a month to see the real thing, they were much uh, all too happy to see the fake that was made you know, a week later. Um, and it, it was a, a mixed reception that they got. We know in some cases there were audiences that walked out and demanded their money uh, because they didn't look like real fights. And yet other places packed them in. And so, of course, from Lubin's point of view, as long as some places will pack them in with the fake films, he'll keep making them. He made them for 10 years. There's two techniques that he used in a lot of his films that you refer to. Uh, one is the vision and the other is the chase. And I want to read something you say here that convinced that uh, the public would enjoy a film regardless of quality as long as it contained a chase. He continued to encourage his directors to use this device to maddening excess. What kind of chases did he have in his movies? And I, that shows that not a lot has changed in movies. No, no. In fact, uh, I'm amazed sometimes at things that are in films today that they were complaining about Lubin doing it in 1908. You know, and, and 90 years later, we're still doing the same thing. Lubin would have anything chase anything. Uh, in one case, there was actually a film of 100 dogs chasing a woman through the street. And he advertised 100 dogs in the chase with three exclamation points because this was a pretty big deal, apparently. But the, the idea of people running and chasing uh, became such a cliche that it's comical. To, to us today, but he was not the only one who did that. Uh, everybody had chase films, and the fact that they're still popular gives you an idea why, I guess. It was just that he did almost nothing but that for a while. You know, he would get fixated on something like that, and as long as it brought in money, he'd keep doing it. You know, 
this was not a man who was interested in art uh, necessarily. He was interested in commercially exploiting this, this possibility. And the vision? Well, the vision is where something fades out and something else fades in. Um, this was all done in the camera in those days. They would uh, crank the camera forward counting, stop and put a cap over the lens, crank it backwards, and then re-expose the same film counting again up to the same point. And so they could fade an angel in. Or for instance, if a woman was having a baby, the stork would magically appear in the room. Uh, I have one example of that in the films that I've, I've brought you today uh, where Columbia fades in and out of a scene uh, as she tells the immigrants you know, how to get to America. But he, um, it was a very easy special effect to achieve and, and Lubin used that uh, to wretched excess as well to, to the point where the uh, reviewers complained about it. Let's take a look at another one of the movies. Now, you okay. brought another one along that Lubin appears in? Yes, the, this would be uh, The Silver King. And uh, Lubin, in this case, uh, appears at a racetrack uh, in, in the uh, early part of the film. This film, on the, the Lubin's on the far left there, again uh, with his trademark derby, and he's got a cigar. And he's one of the betters uh, at the racetrack. The only surviving copy of this film ended up in a box of films that a friend of mine bought at an auction, and he brought it to my house one day and said, can you help me identify these? And as we went over the films, it turned out that uh, this was the Silver King. Now, Lubin's in the crowd here, but watch what happens. He, he reacts late to everybody. It's almost as though his horse was running dead last, and he has to come out at the end. But I think it's also a way that he calls attention to himself on camera. Now, he never advertised that he was in these films. There he is wandering about at the left. That's, that's the end of that scene. Was that the whole movie? That no, that's in? just the opening scene. The, the film was based on a very famous play, The Silver King, uh, which when I checked the, uh, the records in the Free Library in Philadelphia, it turned out the film had, or that play had played in Philadelphia 30 times in 25 years. So it was a very, very popular uh, old war horse. And what had happened over the years was that that play had gone from the first run theaters down to the third-rate theaters. And it became so popular, so well-known, that what Lubin did was to film just vignettes from it. Uh, the film by itself makes no sense whatsoever. You have to know the story. You have to have seen the play. I suspect this is one of those films that was uh, narrated, that somebody actually described to the audience, well, here's the famous scene where, and in this scene, this happens. And their familiarity and the narration would have made coherence out of a film that's otherwise absolutely incoherent. You write in the book about some of the experiments he did with synchronizing sound. Can you explain that, how he went about doing that? Well, Lubin, um, as early as 1903, was interested in the idea that if he could get there first with synchronized sound, uh, he could make money. Now, of course, he um, took a shortcut to this. The very first thing that he did was to make song films, as he called them, and the film would synchronize to people literally singing uh, in, in the theater. But it's the very first time that anybody tried to market as a package, you know, the music and the, uh, and, and the film with the intention that they'd be synchronized. Uh, the next step was he began marketing uh, phonographs and records, and then he would make films to go along with the records. Now, he pretended that he had brought in famous instrumentalists and he filmed them while they're played. 
What he did was to have the record running in the studio and somebody pretended to be the famous instrumentalist pretending to play that particular piece. And so, you know, they were synchronizing their actions to the sound of the xylophone or the clarinet or whatever. Um, that didn't work very well. He only marketed that for a month. But it is significant as the very first attempt by anybody to mass market uh, a sound film in any form. Unfortunately, none of the films survive. A couple of the records do, but none of those films survive. Did he distribute nationwide? He distributed worldwide. Uh, Lubin, as far uh, as early as 1899, was marketing in Europe uh, out of uh, German um, uh, trade industry journals. And through that route, uh, he marketed then uh, in England, France, Belgium, uh, Italy. And uh, their, their testimonial letters from those countries appear in his German ads. Now, of course, he was from Germany originally, and he had a brother in Berlin who I think kind of helped him uh, with the business there. But he uh, was marketing in Europe earlier than anybody. When did you first get interested in films? When I was about six years old, actually. Uh, I, I, in fact, I almost hate to admit this, but it was the Howdy Doody show that got me interested in silent films because they used to show these old-time movies and in first grade that... that for some reason really appealed to me. So, and, and it was specifically the silent films that always interested me. Are you still a movie buff? I mean, do you go to current movies or do you? No, I've not gone into a first run theater probably in 20 years. Why not? Well, the noise, the expense, the rudeness. Uh, and generally, um, if, you know, once, once the film has proven to be popular and I'm interested enough, then I'll, then I'll watch it. But unfortunately, then I have to see it on video. <laughs> But I, uh, you know, my, my colleagues think I'm very strange for this reason. They're always going to first-run films, but I just don't do it. Do you have a collection of silent films, or do you, do you study silent films in general? Yes. Or is it just the... Well, the, the earlier films. the better. My, my interest is very much in the very beginnings of this technology and how the business gets, gets going. But I have, uh, in my own collection, probably oh, three or 400 uh, silent films on video. And then I have a handful of... Um, Lubin's films on the 16 millimeter as well. Where do you get them? The, the videos or the Lubin films? Either. Well, there's dozens of companies now that market uh, and, uh, silent films on video. Just in the last 10, 15 years, this has become a phenomenon. There was a time when you couldn't get them at all. But uh, today, they're, they're quite readily available, more so than I can keep up with uh, any, anymore, which is nice. How do Lubin films compare to other films that were being made at the time? Well, it, it depends. In the earliest period of time, they compare well. In fact, sometimes Lubin is even innovative. But past maybe 1909, 1910, 1911, uh, Lubin lags behind. The film industry began to change and to move so fast that his films kind of got lost in the shuffle. He did not improve and upgrade as fast as the industry did. And Lubin, like so many of the other early film pioneers, just gets overrun by the industry that, that they started. It, it just grew much faster than these old-timers could keep up with. But Lubin was never especially interested in the artistic side of films anyway. You know, this was something that would make money, and as long as the film made money, he didn't care whether the critics said it was you know, awful. Tell me about this building here, the Lubin building. That building uh, was at 926 Market in Philadelphia, and it contained his theater on the first floor, one of his many theaters, 
His offices were on the floor above, then there was a studio, and on the floors above that were processing labs and storage areas. So he actually has uh, distribution and production and exhibition all in the same building. And it's a, literally a physical evidence of him vertically integrating the industry uh, at that early date. That building burned in 1912 because of the film stored there. Was that where the fire was? No, that was, this is where one of the fires was. The, quite a few buildings burned. Uh, the worst of Lubin's fires was at his big studio in North Philadelphia. But that building uh, there that we just saw burned in 1912. He had sold the, uh, that particular site to a film distribution company. Uh, and so he no longer owned it, even though it was still referred to as the Lubin building. But uh, the nitrate film went up one night and it took the whole block with it. It was one of Philadelphia's worst fires. What's the difference between nitrate film and the kind of film they use now? Well, the, the film they use today, uh, it's acetate based and it's referred to as safety film. It won't burn. Uh, it'll scorch, but it won't burn. Nitrate film was made from the same materials that were used to make uh, high explosives. And the film was extraordinarily uh, volatile. Uh, it will ignite in a quarter of a second. And of course, they were using open flame in the projectors in those days. And if the film got stuck for that brief a period of time in front of that flame in the projector, uh, it just went. Uh, it didn't just burn quickly, it burned so quickly it was close to being explosive. So the film was very, very unstable, very dangerous. Uh, it produced a beautiful image, crisp and clear and luminous. And that was why they were so reluctant uh, to, to go away from it. Uh, I've only ever once seen nitrate film uh, projected, and I won't tell you when and where because <laughs> it's illegal. It is? But, yes, but it was a striking difference, yes. Better than what we yes. use now. Yes, and, and they can't replicate that quality. To see nitrate projected in a big theater, uh, the way that those films were seen in those days, it's really quite an experience, and uh, nobody can replicate that effect. It's illegal? Yes, yeah, because of the fire code. You can't project something explosive like that in a theater. There were hundreds of theaters that burned in those days. There were a number of uh, disasters, actually, and you couldn't get insurance, fire insurance on uh, film vaults. You couldn't get fire insurance on theaters or on studios, uh, which is why when Lubin's studio burned, uh, he was out a half a million dollars uh, just from the stock loss. Uh, there was no, no way you can get insurance. There were even uh, strict regulations on how you shipped films uh, because certain couriers wouldn't carry the film unless it was shipped in certain ways. It was so, so very dangerous. I want to read you something about the fire, the way you described it and some of the things that were lost. I need to find it here for a second. You say that among the uh, things that were lost were all his films of President McKinley and his cabinet, the films of the San Francisco earthquake, the victory parades in, the Philadelphia, in Philadelphia following the Spanish-American War, Pennsylvania coal strikes and the crucial game of baseball season in 1902 when Rube Waddell pitched the Philadelphia Athletics to their first American League championship. These were the, the masters of these, or the only copies of them? Yes, Lubin kept uh, a master copy of every film that he made. He had a pretty good sense of the historical value of things. In fact, he was one of the first to realize that history was being recorded and that the news was being recorded. And, and the news would one day, he said, be marketed on moving images, not in print. Uh, and so he saved a master image of all of these things, partly for sentimental reasons, partly for documentary reasons, but they were the only copies of these things. And it's really a shame because a lot of very interesting uh, historic footage was lost in that fire. 
as well as things that were just, say, of personal value to him or curiosity. There were things that were of real historic value that were lost. He sent cameras out to, or a camera out to film San Francisco after the earthquake? Yes. As soon as the telegraph uh, message reached Philadelphia, uh, he sent his assistant, a man by the name of Frawley, uh, with a, a camera and two assistants uh, to, to San Francisco. It took them four, four days by train. Uh, fortunately for them, not for anybody else, the city was still burning uh, at that point, and so they were able to get some, some good footage. How did they use it? Uh, they used it as what they called in those days actualities. We would call it a newsreel today. Uh, they, at one point, as soon as that film arrived in Philadelphia, uh, four different theaters were showing those films simultaneously to uh, overflow crowds. You know, this was everybody's first glimpse of the disaster. Because we'd see it on the evening news for 30 seconds today. Uh, but in those days, if it was two weeks later and this was your first glimpse of it, everybody turned out in mobs to see it. When did the idea of a movie star get started? Well, movie star, uh, the traditional story is that Florence Lawrence was the first movie star. Uh, she worked uh, at the Biograph Company in New York and became yeah, very, very popular. So popular that uh, people wrote to the studio asking, who is that girl? And they wouldn't tell who, who the girl was, and so they called her the Biograph Girl. Uh, the studio didn't want to tell because they didn't want to have to pay her more money. Lubin um, was able to get her services a few years after that, around 1911, Florence Lawrence came to work for him in Philadelphia, and he was quite aware that he could market her. And she was a very good actress. Uh, ironically, her films for Lubin in 1911 were probably among the best he made. Uh, you know, that may have been artistically the height of his career in 1911, uh, but only two of those films survive today. Were these people who acted in his movies from the stage, or did he create a whole new group of people? Both. Uh, well, a very large number of them came from the stage, and of course this was the case throughout the industry. Uh, a lot of actors came from the, the legitimate theater uh, in those days. Lubin, in the very early days, in the 1890s, was taking them off the stage of vaudeville, and, and you can tell uh, just by the, you know, the manic behavior of some of these actors as they have to be off, uh, off the stage. But he um, did recruit very heavily from the theater uh, for a long period of time. But there were others who quite accidentally ended up on camera and they worked and they became stars uh, without having any particular background. Tell me about this gentleman um, in that picture there. Arthur V. Johnson. Uh, he was in the very first movie that D.W. Griffith ever made in New York in 1908. And Lubin lured him to Philadelphia also in 19, uh, late 1910, early 1911. And he was probably one of the most popular stars that Lubin had. He was a trained uh, Shakespearean actor from, from the stage. Uh, a very good actor, as a matter of fact. Uh, unfortunately, he had a tendency to drink and that, that pretty much ruined his career and it made him um, unemployable in a lot of other studios. Uh, but Lubin, um, appointed him director. He, he worked as a director as well as an actor and turned out fairly decent quality work, actually, you know, whether it's directing or, or acting. And, and except for his kind of self-destructive lifestyle, he probably would, would have been a much uh, bigger star in those days, but he died of alcoholism in 1916. Age 39. 39, yeah. You mentioned directing. When did the idea of a, a film director get started? Well, there, there's no... Um, easy date that you can fix. Essentially what happened in the very beginning, the cameraman was the director. 
the cameraman set up the shot and then he told everybody what to do while he cranked the camera. And then he would cut the film. And as time went on, as the films got longer and a little bit more complicated, then inevitably somebody was appointed just to run the show while everybody else uh, either acted or cranked the camera or did other things. But uh, it's impossible to pin down a person and a date and say, here's where the very first director started making a film. It's, it's maybe um, 93, 4, 5, somewhere in there. Did Lubin ever direct films? Oh, yes. Lubin did absolutely everything. At one time or another, um, he cranked the camera, he directed the films, he wrote the scenarios, he uh, edited the films. Of course, he performed uh, in front of the camera. Uh, he quite literally did every job you can imagine uh, in, in the whole business. He ran theaters. How many at, people worked for him at a peak? At his peak, there were probably a thousand people uh, employed by the Lubin Company. This would be spread over several different uh, studios. Where were the studios? Well, the main studio was in Philadelphia, and then uh, out in the Philadelphia suburbs at Bettswood was his largest uh, studio. They covered uh, close to uh, 350 acres. But he had a studio also um, that was a migratory studio moving around Arizona and uh, New Mexico. He had a studio in Los Angeles. He had a studio in Jacksonville, Florida. And then briefly, he had a studio uh, in San Diego on the island of Coronado. So he had uh, six studios at one point operating simultaneously. Was there much other movie making going on in Los Angeles at the time? Oh, yes. Yeah, by the time the Lubin Company got there, there were already maybe 50 other studios. Uh, and by the time the Lubin Company quit Los Angeles in 1916, there were 100 studios already. Yeah, that, that uh, became very quickly in the early days a, a movie-making uh, center. Now, this one is the one you just referred to, yes. Bettswood in Montgomery County. Where in Montgomery County is that? Uh, if you're familiar with Valley Forge Park, this is directly across the river from Valley Forge National uh, Historic Park. Why did he build that? Well, he needed open space. They uh, had the big studio in Philadelphia, but it was hemmed in by business and industry and houses, and they had no, they had no back lot. So essentially, when they bought this uh, estate out in the suburbs, then they had as much land as they, could, uh, as they needed for anything. In the background there, in fact, you see that little line of buildings. Uh, but beyond those buildings, you'll see a big empty field, and that was actually a fake desert. They plowed the field and spread it with lime and put fake cactus plants and so they could shoot western scenes back there. And on another occasion, they built a whole town back there and burned it down for a film. So they needed those sorts of spaces. And um, that was essentially why the Betsu Studio had been, had been purchased. It was a big uh, estate with two working farms originally. Uh, had been built by a, a famous brewer, a Philadelphia brewer by the name of John Betts. What was a big budget film back then? What they spend? Well, if you're talking about feature films, uh, and those were the ones that really took a lot of money, uh, they considered uh, fifteen to twenty thousand a lot of money to make a film. A real big budget film would be, say, fifty thousand. Uh, of course, that's comical uh, to us today, uh, but you know, fifty thousand dollars went a long way in those days. You brought another film along. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what that is? Uh, let's see, the next one, what is the next film that we have on that? That's the one that has the German titles. Oh, the Im Lande der Unterdrückung. This um, is a very interesting film in that I, I think it's the very first time anybody tried to use cinema to combat anti-Semitism. Uh, Lubin made this film in the outskirts of Philadelphia in 19, uh, 1908. 
and it shows Jews in Russia being driven from their homes by the Cossacks. And here we see them on the run through the countryside and they fall down here exhausted uh, from running. And what happens next is an example of a vision scene in a Lubin film. Columbia pops up in a dream and she tells the Jews, go to America. You see here, Columbia points the way to America. And of course, they respond enthusiastically. This one was part of a series he made in 1907 to 1909, and all the films were uh, made to combat uh, anti-Semitic uh, prejudice. Im Lande der Freiheit, in the land of freedom. And you'll notice at the end of this boat, he makes sure he gets the American flag in there. You mentioned quite a few times in the book that he is Jewish. Yes. How is that significant? Well, it's significant because he's really the first Jewish film mogul. We, we think uh, of almost the stereotypical Hollywood producer, you know, Louis B. Mayer and the Warner Brothers and so on, the Jewish moguls. But Lubin was sort of the godfather to all of those people. He was, he was the first. You see, they hear the immigrants arrive in America. Now, the reason this film uh, survives with German intertitles is that Lubin sent it back to Germany for distribution, which I think is very interesting, of course. Uh, a Jew who's left Germany because of anti-Semitic prejudice makes a film about immigration and persecution and sends it back to his homeland. You know, this, this cannot be an accident. Uh, I, I think I, I find that uh, very, very interesting altogether. Can you tell the story about how, uh, how uh, Lubin saved, I guess, saved an early project by Cecil B. DeMille and uh, Samuel Goldwyn? Oh, the, the first film uh, that uh, DeMille and Goldwyn and Jesse Lasky made, The Squaw Man, um, they had borrowed a great deal of money to make the film, and they had spent all of the money to make the film. And when they began to project their finished product, uh, the image kept sliding off the screen and they couldn't figure out why. You know, they, they couldn't frame it. It wouldn't stay. And they uh, went to Lubin uh, with this uh, secretly because Lubin was now part of a corporation that was sworn to keep other people out of the business and these were young independents trying to break into the business. And uh, Lubin fixed the film for them. He saw in a matter of minutes what the problem was. It was a matter of the sprocket holes weren't right. There wasn't the proper number uh, per inch. And so he, uh, according to one version of the story, glued a strip of film alongside of their film and reporforated it. And this made it run through the projector uh, properly. But he, he really saved them because uh, had they not been able to market this and make profits, they would have been sued for fraud and they all would have ended up in jail and that would have been the last you have heard of any of these people. Uh, but it was Sam Goldwyn, who was Sam Goldfish uh, still in those days, uh, who apparently knew Lubin or knew of Lubin. And uh, they, they, went to, they went to Lubin uh, for that particular reason. You said in the beginning of the program that it was about 20 years from the time you first heard about Lubin to the time you completed this book. Yes. How did you decide to write the book and how did you go about writing it? Well, the, I didn't decide right away. Actually, it was a hobby for many years and I, uh, I dabbled in it. But it became an all-consuming curiosity. I kept finding information and that made me then wonder where the next piece of the puzzle was. And one, one thing really just led to another, that suddenly I realized I had a whole filing cabinet full of material, that there were lots of people who were interested in this. There were film scholars who were calling me, for instance, and saying, well, did you ever find out about this or this or this? 
And so I decided I more or less had a responsibility to put all this in some sort of a coherent form. And so that was when the actual purposeful writing of a book began. But it wasn't something I ever intended to do, not, not in the first place anyway. It took maybe um, seven years to actually do the writing of it. How'd you find a publisher? Uh, I went to the writer's guide in the, in the library and uh, looked for publishers who published books on movies. And uh, Fairleigh Dickinson uh, Press uh, specializes in books on movies and also books on Jewish history. And I thought, well, Lubin fits into two uh, categories here, so let's see if they were interested, in the, and they were quite interested. Is this your first book? Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. How many rejection slips did you get? Uh, one. Oh, you only sent it to yes, two? Yes, I had sent it uh, to another press previous to that. But it wasn't finished at that point either, so I can't blame them for not wanting it. <laughs> it was uh, six of uh, a proposed ten chapters at that time. How is this book, how do you, would you like this book to be used? Well, uh, I'd like it uh, to be used by scholars, uh, of course, and, and that was the primary intention. It was written for people who would be interested in the very early uh, days of film. Uh, I try to make it accessible to the general public, uh, but it's, it's a specialized taste, of course. Not everybody's interested in the very, very early uh, early days of the movies. One of the names you mentioned a little bit earlier was the, the Philadelphia Free Library, and that yes. shows up a lot in mm -hmm. the credits for photographs yes. in this book. How did you use the Free Library? Well, the Philadelphia Free Library in the theater collection has the largest uh, collection of Lubin memorabilia anywhere. Uh, his scrapbooks are there, for instance, uh, as well as maybe a thousand photographs, uh, a handful of catalogs, a uh, number of physical objects like the Brass Liberty Bell from his limousine, uh, things of that sort. But his scrapbooks, which run to uh, several volumes, were compiled by a clipping service uh, in Lubin's office uh, starting in 1912. He had his secretaries round up uh, by way of a clipping service any reference in the press anywhere uh, to him or to his business. And they slapped these into these big old ledger books, uh, rather, rather haphazardly, actually. But that was how he keep, kept track of his image, you know, how he and his company were doing in the press. Uh, literally, if, if uh, an article mentions the word Lubin, it's in the, it's in the scrapbook. Uh, but they're hand-labeled, they're in no particular order, but by sifting through it, you know, very slowly over a long period of time, it was amazing how much information was, was there. So that became one of my primary sources. Can the public have access to that? Well, yes, yes and no. Uh, the problem is these are extremely fragile and they're not inventoried. And it would be very, very difficult for anybody to make sense of them. Was it painstaking to plow through it all? Uh, that's... Probably a mild statement, yes. It was a very, very difficult process. For one thing, the pages crumble when you try to lift them. They're all individually in mylar, but they're so fragile that even turning them uh, makes little pieces come off. And you know, the poor library and, uh, you know, suffered long uh, over my efforts uh, because there were little pieces falling off the table every time I had to work with the scrapbooks. Let me ask you about this photograph here. There's a, a scene you write about where Lubin crashed two trains together. Yes. For a scene in the movie. Uh, it was actually uh, a substitute for fireworks at a Labor Day picnic in 1914 in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania, near Altoona. And they crashed two old locomotives together at 35 miles an hour for um, special effects, filmed it from at least 12 different angles, and then that uh, spectacular and very expensive crash 
got used in at least five different films. You said train crash scenes were popular among filmmakers at the time? Uh, yes, they were extremely popular. Uh, everybody wanted to see train crashes, and there's, there's quite a few uh, early films that survived that show train wrecks of one sort or another. Lubin's was one of the better ones, uh, but he paid for it. That was $25,000 just for that wreck. And of course, that was more than the whole budget for some films in those days. That's why he milked it for what it was worth. You know, five different films. The critics started complaining mightily. You know, we've seen this already, <laughs> even if it was from a different angle. When did film critics start? Quite early, actually. Um, as early as around 1908, uh, there were reviews going into things like the New York Dramatic Mirror. Uh, another publication uh, was the New York Clipper. There was something called Moving Picture World. And all of these would at first do little capsule reviews that were pretty much just synopses. But then, uh, inevitably, they would begin adding a little bit of editorial comment to the synopses. You know, like, this film was really wonderful or this film was really awful. And they, they were intended as guidelines for exhibitors. If somebody's going to buy films and show them in their theater, they wanted to know what it was like before they put out the money for it. And then it just, it just grew as an idea. You know, pretty soon the review was nothing but critical comment on the film and no synopsis uh, at all. He brought another couple of clips that I want to make sure we yes. fit in, and mm -hmm. one is with uh, someone who became quite famous later on in life. Yes, Oliver Hardy. Uh, his first films were made uh, for Lubin at the Jacksonville studio. Here he is, Oliver Hardy, known as Oliver Babe Hardy in those days. He's t about 22 years old. This is of Laurel and Hardy fame. Yes, and this is long, long before he ever meets Stan Laurel. The woman there is Mabel Page, who was a famous vaudeville star. Was this shot at this Philadelphia studio? No, this is at the Jacksonville studio in, in Florida. Uh, Hardy wanted to break into films and would go down to the studio there uh, every day and do whatever was available to be done. You know, he would carry lumber, he would cut things, he would uh, wash windows, whatever. The story is one day he was standing on the sidelines and the director needed somebody heavy set and he yelled over, hey, fat boy, come here, and put him in front of the camera, and that was the start of his career. You know, that, that's the legend, anyhow, that it was you know, entirely uh, an accident that Oliver Hardy ended up in front of a camera. How many films did he make for Lubin? He made about, um, about 15 to 20 films for Lubin. A couple survived. This is the earliest one. This is the earliest known footage of him uh, that survives. We'll just let that run because there's a very good shot of, uh, of him just after this one. Yes, sir. Well, the, the director found out, of course, very quickly that he was wonderful on camera, and, and the audiences uh, actually responded to him almost overnight. He was, uh, he really uh, evoked the kind of response that he still does, uh, even in his earliest films. And then the last clip you brought was a, a woman by the name of what? Marie Dressler, uh, not all that well-known uh, today, but she was a, a famous uh, stage actress and, and vaudeville actress. And she's famous in terms of film history as being uh, co-starring with Charlie Chaplin in 1914 in the first full-length comedy film. Uh, that particular film was called uh, Tilly's Punctured Romance. What you're seeing here is 1915. A year later, she's working for Lubin, uh, who was trying to capitalize on her success. And so here she is making uh, a sequel to Tilly's Punctured Romance. This was Tilly's Tomato Surprise. 
which is about 44, I believe, at this point. And uh, she played off her unfortunate looks. You know, the more childish and kittenish she tried to be, the funnier it was, and she knew it. Why is there not a Lubin studio today? What happened to it? Well, Lubin uh, went out of business in, in 1916. Um, his uh, studio fell in hard times for lots of reasons, starting in 1914. Everything seemed to catch up with him at once. There was a terrible fire in 1914 that destroyed the film vaults and all of his films. And uh, If the wind had been blowing the other way, the whole studio would have been lost. Uh, that was a crushing blow to him financially. It was also a crushing blow to him emotionally. Apparently, he began to get ill then and never recovered. Uh, right after that, the First World War started. Uh, that cost him a huge amount of money because he was distributing internationally more than any other studio in those days. And he had shipped uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of the films that now he didn't get paid for because these exchanges and theaters went under overnight uh, in Europe. And so he couldn't recoup those losses. He was a member of the Patents Company, which uh, Thomas Edison had founded. It was kind of a monopoly, an attempt at a monopoly. They uh, were being sued by the federal government as a trust, and so Lubin was losing money there. Uh, and then the feature film uh, overwhelmed him. Feature films almost overnight put the Nickelodeons out of business. And Lubin was making features, but what he didn't realize was that the features were going to put the Nickelodeons out of business. He was trying to play both sides of the fence, and he ended up spreading himself too thin. And by 1916, he was bankrupt. And uh, his uh, creditors uh, foreclosed on the studio. If someone wanted to see a, a Sigmund Lubin film now, how would they go about doing it? Well, if they really wanted to see a Sigmund Lubin film, they'd almost have to go to an archive that uh, stores them. Uh, the Library of Congress, of course, is very accessible in that regard because it's a, a public institution. Other archives, like the George Eastman House, uh, for instance, um, or the British Film Institute, uh, have Lubin films, and you can get permission to see those. Uh, or they can come to the Bettswood Film Festival at Montgomery County Community College, where every year for the last 10 years we have shown these films uh, in, in May at our annual festival. How would they find out about that if they wanted to? Well, uh, we advertise through brochures, and we advertise also on the Internet. Uh, the college website uh, contains a link to our... Uh, to our film festival page. It's uh, the first, uh, first week of May is when we do that. Now, after spending 20 years off and on working on this book, you have another book in mind? Well, no, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I'm still recovering from doing this one. And at the rate I work, uh, I'm not sure that it'd be such a good idea. My contract uh, with Fairleigh Dickinson specifies that they get the right of refusal on the next two books. Uh, at, at the time length that it took me to do this, I'd be in my 90s by that time, so I'm not holding my breath, and I hope they're not. <laughs> this is the cover of the book, The King of the Movies. Joseph Eckhart, thanks for being with us. You're quite welcome. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.